Just in time for summer, the folks at Epic Brewing have released a new canned cocktail, the Utah Margarita. A delicious blend of real lime and agave, the Utah Margarita is ready to drink by the river or in the park. And here's the kicker, no need to buy it at a liquor store. Pick up a six pack of Epic Brewing's Utah Margarita at any local Harmon's or Trader Joe's, or visit Epic Brewing on State Street in downtown Salt Lake City. Here's what Salt Lake's talking about. Salt Lake City has a brand new five-year housing plan. It's called Housing SLC. And as we sit with the news that one in five Utah listings cost more than $1 million, I am curious about Salt Lake's vision and how they plan to execute it. It's Wednesday, August 23rd. I'm Ali Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. Rudy Mathis, you are a policy manager for Salt Lake City's Community and Neighborhoods Department. Now, you just let the city council through the process of approving a new five-year housing plan called Housing SLC. How is Salt Lake City's housing situation right now different than what it was five years ago? That's a good question. I think the main thing is that we're just farther along into the crisis. So when the previous plan, which is called Growing SLC, was adopted in the kind of preamble, it it mentioned that we're in the early stages of a housing crisis that has since kind of been exacerbated. We had a lot of people move into the city, predominantly kind of adults who were migrating from other states coming in, putting increased pressure on the housing market, um, both the for sale and the rental markets that just really kind of blew things up in a lot of ways. So what you're saying then is five years ago, we saw this coming. I think we saw it coming, but didn't know that it was going to be this bad. We thought that the approaches that we were taking would help. In reality, what ended up happening is things really went haywire, especially during the COVID pandemic when people could start working remotely. And we had a lot of construction going on, but there was just more demand than we could reasonably keep up with on the housing side of things. And then you know, with federal stimulus, people were able to stay in their homes and in their apartments. So there was all of that combined kept vacancy rates really low. You had for sale home prices skyrocket, which meant that people who would normally buy homes were stuck in the rental market, coupled with people moving in. All of that just really made things go crazy. A perfect storm. Yeah. So how is this new housing plan different from the old housing plan? I would say some of the main differences are it's it leans on transparency and accountability um, in a way that the previous housing plan didn't. What we've done now is we can say, here's what we're going to try to do, and here's when we're going to try to do it by, which lets anybody who reads the plan, which hopefully is a lot of people, um, <laughs> they can keep us going. Another thing is, I really feel like this plan focuses on the people most in need. Um, housing prices going up affect everybody, but it really affects people who are at the lowest end of the income spectrum. And so 
by having a real emphasis on creating housing and programs and resources for that population, we can hopefully alleviate a lot of the pressure at the top as well. But the focus is really on kind of deeply affordable housing and programs to mitigate displacement um, and things like that so that we can keep people housed um, who are in the most precarious housing situations. Well, and I would say, like, I do encourage anyone listening to read the plan. It is like a cool 30 pages. It is not a it's not like reading a new law that the legislature has written. It's, <laughs> it is pretty approachable. And there are three big goals in there. Personally, I I love all of them. So one is increase our affordable housing supply Two, increase housing stability by keeping people in their homes and helping people who've been displaced find new ones. And three, increase opportunities for home ownership. Now, those are three big hitters, but I have to ask you, which one is most important? I would really say the first two that you mentioned would probably go hand in hand. Um, part of the reason why we're in the situation that we're in is there just isn't enough housing to go around. And so anytime that's the case, uh, supply and demand theory of economics shows that prices will go up when there's greater demand. Like we can't solve this problem without more housing. That's just a, the fact of the matter. But we also can't solve this problem if we don't put tools and resources and programs into place to help keep people housed, to really mitigate the development pressures that are on neighborhoods and and individual households. If we don't do those things while we're building all this, we're still not going to solve this problem. Well, and I guess another question that comes up a lot in this city when we talk about development is where do we build this new housing? Not just in what neighborhoods, but also do we build it out? Do we build it up? Like there are people who want to see our skyline grow. There are people who don't. How is this plan approaching where we build? As a plan, it doesn't set specific locations. What it does do is it calls for increased geographic equity. One of the things we heard a lot through the engagement process was that, especially folks on the West side, were feeling that a lot of affordable housing and new development is going into their neighborhoods, either forcing them out or congregating poverty into a certain area. We want to really try to have greater geographic equity through this plan. That is difficult to do given that land prices vary. But we also realize that increased density is part of the solution, right? In order to get more housing into a, a city that's pretty much built out, we have to go up. We have to allow for neighborhoods to have things like ADUs or accessory dwelling units. Also known as mother-in-law. Yeah, mother-in-law apartments. Things like fourplexes and even eightplexes, kind of what's referred to as the missing middle. We need that in more parts of the city. And so that's part of the plan as well. We talked to Alessandro Rigolone on this show about just sort of gentrification and general housing stuff, not this plan specifically, but one of the things that was brought up is condos. And I personally am obsessed with condo. Like I would like to buy a condo, but it feels like everything that's going up is for rent, not for ownership. Are there things that the city can be doing to incentivize building condos or is that an all roads lead to the legislature problem? 
I will admit this is a little bit out of my area of expertise. I do know that there are state barriers. There are also financing barriers to condominiumization. So I think that there are things that the city could do. Like there may be incentive opportunities. I just don't know that those without putting in tons of money to do it. I just don't know that there'd be enough that the city on its own could do to really change the conversation. That said, I think that there are other ownership opportunities, whether it's rent to own opportunities or shared equity opportunities. The city uh, in the previous budget just granted $10 million to the Perpetual Housing Fund, which is a structure that's new in Utah that allows renters in a building, a stake in that building to some extent. So, you know, those things along with community land trusts where ownership is just more affordable are things that we need to be looking at. And that's kind of that third goal that you mentioned, the increase home ownership opportunities. We need to be looking outside of what's traditionally happened, partly because there are barriers to condominiums. There are barriers to building new for sale properties in Salt Lake City, but there are opportunities that we could look elsewhere in the country and elsewhere in the world to say, look, this shared equity model is really good. It provides stability for people. They get a little bit back. It's not going to be the silver bullet to end kind of the, the racial wealth gap, but it does provide that st stability in housing, which is so vital um, in so many areas of life. The Living Traditions Festival is back in downtown Salt Lake City, May 17th through 19th, and this is when I come alive. It is so easy to sell me on three days of Washington Square and Library Square converting to a global food court, and this festival has truly been one of my favorites for years now. Living Traditions convenes the diversity of artistic traditions, food heritage, music, and art from the many cultures that have made Utah their home. You can expect everything from live music and dance to hands-on workshops, a little shopping, Sundance film screenings, and Bohemian Brewery. There is something for the whole family, and it's free entry. Come celebrate all of the rich cultures that make up our community. Find more information on the festival and view the full program guide at livingtraditionsfestival.com or on Instagram and Facebook at SLC Living Trad. We talk a lot on this show about our city's crown jewels. What are the institutions that open doors in our community and regulate its pulse? I choose Salt Lake Community College, and it is a home for incredibly focused Salt Lakers. Nearly 80% of their students work while going to school, many full-time jobs. If I could do college all over again, I would not be 33 and sitting on these damn student loans. And slick students aren't. 80% graduate with little to no student loan debt or save thousands knocking out credits before transferring to a four-year institution. Every day, Salt Lake Community College is transforming lives and communities through education. If you wanna learn something new, refine a trade, or pursue a higher degree for the first time, explore your options at slcc.edu. Study alongside hard workers, save precious money, 
and be one in a class of 19, not 100. We actually did an interview with Ashley Atkinson, the executive director of the Perpetual Housing Fund, about that $10 million investment on the city's behalf and what cooperative models can look like in terms of rent to own. So for any listeners who are curious about that, I will link it in the show notes for this episode. But I want to ask you, Rudy, about goalkeeping, because you mentioned transparency is, is one of the things that sets this plan apart from other housing plans the city's had. Goals are great, but executing on them can be hard, especially in a free market when things are kind of often shifting and changing. What will it take to make good on these three goals outlined in this housing plan? I think the first thing is just we need a concerted effort on behalf of city staff who are carrying out a lot of this, right? The second thing is we also need help from the community, right? Nonprofit organizations, other housing advocates, they can partner with us to help us complete the goal because we can only do so much um, as the city. And to be honest, we need the state to give us more money to, for affordable housing. That's going to be huge. So there are things that need to happen outside of the city for us to hit this out of the park. It was set up to be a, it, done in such a way that if the city were to do it on its own, we could meet the goals. It would be a stretch, but we could meet them. And we'll be better off if we try to hit you know, these high lofty goals than if we don't. So that was kind of the mindset that we took. We wanted it to be aspirational, but also achievable. Well, I mean, on the note of money, again, to bring up our conversation with Alessandro Rigolone, he brought up the idea of an affordable housing bond. Could that be a realistic option in terms of securing serious funding for housing investments in Salt Lake, similar to the parks bond that we just passed? I think that all options should be on the table. Um, I think a bond certainly should be on the table. New sources of funding are one of the big priorities because we know that we can't do a lot of what we want to do without that funding. Well, the way that Salt Lake City has approached increasing our affordable housing supply has often relied on incentivizing developers to mix affordable units with market rate development. That obviously helps them pencil it out for their bottom line. How can we think outside of the box to make progress on our housing crisis? I think that there are a lot of examples globally as well as within the states, especially now. I think there are a lot of communities who are trying to do things differently. Montgomery County, Maryland has set up a public developer that is meant to create kind of a non-market housing option. So I think we need to look at things like that. And at the same time, we need to really be looking at what other communities and states are doing when it comes to tenant protections. You know, we live in a state that does not favor renters very much. No. Um, <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> to put it mildly. Yes. And so I think we need to think about ways that as a city and as a community, we can work around state law in creative ways. And that's why I bring up community and like public ownership, because if the community owns the property, rent control preemptions at the state level don't really matter because the community sets the rent. 
throughout I'm the into country. it, Rudy. <laughs> I'm into it. I got to tell you, I think this is the kind of creative thinking that Salt Lakers are yearning for when it comes to our housing crisis, which has ultimately tumbled into a homelessness crisis. Like, yeah. What are some examples of ways you think we could get creative? I think talking through kind of the community ownership piece, it's like shared equity models and community ownership or public ownership through kind of a, a public development arm. Those all put power back in control of the community rather than private landlords. The way that the system is currently set up is you really have to rely on the benevolence of a landlord to have a favorable condition. There are benevolent landlords out there and they should be praised for what they do. But we also need to think about the fact that with so much large scale construction going on, there's a lot more corporate landlords coming into play and they have a different mission than you know, a, a small mom and pop landlord and they would have a different mission than a nonprofit landlord or a public landlord. So I think thinking about those kind of opportunities is really important. Um, I also think about finding ways to support grassroots organizations that are already doing really good work, especially because Salt Lake City is very fledgling in its advocacy realm compared with some of the larger cities. Um, we don't quite have the civic engagement that some of the larger cities do as far as organizations and grassroots movements. And so we need to, as a city, support when there are grassroots movements to say, we want to see this happen. Listening to you, I mean, you are a policy manager for Salt Lake City, but you sound to me like a community organizer. And when I think about some of the grassroots organizations that are working in the realm of housing, you know, the Rose Park Brown Berets, Wasatch Tenants United, I don't think that they have been allies to the city necessarily in this work. Like, I think that there have been a lot of cases where they've had to position themselves pretty deeply in opposition to the city. How do you build relationships with some of these grassroots groups so that the city can be taking on a little bit more advocacy work? I think that the city, you know, as an entity has to be willing to come to the table. I am a huge fan of organizations that antagonize the city and push us to do more and be better. I think that a city can only thrive if there are organizations pushing it in the right direction. I also think that if it's only antagonism without acknowledgement of things that are happening, it can be really tiresome for, especially for elected officials, but even for city staff who have to deal with those organizations. And so what I think we need to do is build a relationship of trust where we can say, this is what we're trying to do. Is this aligned with what you want? If not, like we can go back to the drawing table, but we also have to remember like we can't just listen to an, you know, one or two advocacy groups. We're a, a government entity that serves all the residents of Salt Lake city. And so we we're trying and we're doing a better job of doing robust community engagement, but we really do need groups like Rose Park Rambrays or Wasatch Tennis United. One that I think on the transportation side is Sweet Streets. Um, we need organizations like that that are going to push us yeah. in a direction that we're already headed, but hopefully can get us there faster. I think that that's kind of a piece that often gets missed is, yes, we're a city government, but we have limited financial resources 
We're not the state. We're not the federal government. And we could go a lot farther with investment from those two larger government sources. So I think that building those relationships is going to be something key over the next five years, hopefully sooner. Rudy Mathis, Salt Lake City Policy Manager. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Building Salt Lake reports that the HK Tower at 100 South and 500 East is about to be fully converted from office space into 60 affordable apartments. This is all a project of the Perpetual Housing Fund, a creative new housing model that, in addition to developing new units of affordable housing in our city, is offering profit sharing with renters and a pathway to ownership. When the program first launched, we interviewed its executive director, Ashley Atkinson, to understand exactly how it all works and where we sign up. I linked that episode in the show notes for you. It's called Getting Paid to Pay Rent in SLC. That is all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. Thank you for listening. We will be back tomorrow morning with more from around this city. Bye. Bye.